Welcome to Nutrition for Mortals, the podcast that says life is too damn short to spend your time and attention worrying about your food choices. So let's take a deep breath and then join us, two registered dietitians and friends, as we explore the world of nutrition with a special focus on cultivating a healthy and peaceful relationship with food. My name is Matt Priven, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host and the best dietitian on planet Earth, Jen Baum. Hey, Jen. Hey, Matt. And just a reminder, if you have an idea for the show, you can always email us at nutritionformortals at gmail.com. We are also on Instagram at nutritionformortals, where we announce our shows ahead of time. So that's kind of fun. And if you're enjoying the show, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and spread the word. Absolutely. So Matt, what are we talking about today? So we are going to be talking about the Minnesota starvation experiment. So I hope, Jen, you'll join me on a little story time today. Our format's going to look a little different than normal, but it's a really interesting story I'm excited to share with people. I am really excited about this topic because I know some about the Minnesota starvation experiment, but I feel like you really did a deep dive into this. And I feel like this is such an amazing kind of almost outrageous piece of nutrition history. And I'm super excited to dig into it more. And I'm just going to start off by saying today we're going to talk about some pretty extreme weight loss in the context of a scientific study, but still pretty extreme weight loss. And there's going to be mentions of specific calorie numbers. So if you try to steer clear of that kind of thing, you know, you've been warned, you can catch us in the next one. Absolutely. Yeah. So today, like I said, we're going to talk about the Minnesota starvation experiment. It's also called the Minnesota semi-starvation experiment. And I'm going to tell the story with the help of one of the participants in the study who actually recorded his experience years ago. So we're going to have a bunch of clips that we're going to use to to tell the story today, because I think you really want to hear from this guy because he's such a character and he's such a, a class act. So I'm excited to to kind of share the stage with with Jim Graham, who participated in this study years ago. But I want to begin by telling the tale by talking about the lead investigator of the study, the man behind the study. His name is Ansel Keys, and he was a really interesting character and a person who has had a pretty profound effect on the world of nutrition and the world of health and what we think about when we think about uh, topics relating to nutrition. So Ansel Keys was born in 1904 to two teenage parents in California. And in his teens and 20s, he had a ton of adventures around the globe studying biology and physiology, but also doing things like working on a steamship to you know, all parts of Asia. And he wound up at the University of Cambridge uh, for, for a good chunk of his studies where he was researching how does the human body react to extreme conditions. And when Keyes was 29, he led an expedition to South America to spend six months on the slopes of the Andes Mountains. And during that time, apparently he spent 10 full days above 20,000 feet in elevation, just measuring the effects of the altitude on his own bloodstream. Oh, wow. I would would never do that. (laughs) I wouldn't either, but that's why we're not Ansel Keys. (laughs) (laughs) We're not making history like this guy. And, And by his early 30s, He had PhDs in both biology and physiology. And so he was a pretty wild guy with this thirst for knowledge. And, you know, that was kind of paired with 
you know, a tendency to get a little extreme in the name of science, which, you know, really makes sense given the story we're about to tell. So this story really picks up when Keyes is 35 years old and he settles down at the University of Minnesota. The year is now 1939, so it's right as World War II is getting started. And he sets up his laboratory of physiological hygiene underneath the stands of the campus football stadium and turns his attention towards research really focused on helping our allies abroad. I mean, this is a guy who really wants to help with his research. And so his first project was creating compact, very shelf-stable food rations that soldiers could eat if food wasn't available. So kind of what we now think of as MREs, Mm -hmm. these early meal boxes were called K rations and the K stands for keys. Oh, no He was the dude. Yeah. That's interesting because I know I know some about MREs and I know that's really what kind of our military and most militaries use for rations. And it sounds like he was like the kind of like the father of these types of meals. Yeah, absolutely. And I watched a bunch of YouTube videos of people like opening K rations from back in the day that I think they spent a ton of money on and like looking inside. And, you know, it, it's sort of that the early era of food science to try to figure out how can we get a lot of calories into a small space. But it was also an interesting look back into history because, you know, he would provide cigarettes and, you know, uh, chewing gum to people, just like things to to keep them, I think, excited when they were Mm -hmm. uh, in the war. Mm -hmm. And so, Mm -hmm. and it was an era where, uh, you know, we weren't really sure if cigarettes were bad for us yet. So it was interesting. But after the production of K rations were up and running and he wasn't really needed anymore, Keyes turned his attention to the first major study since arriving in Minneapolis, which would be known as the Minnesota semi-starvation experiment, which is again, the topic of our show today. And like I said, I'm going to tell this story with the help of a recording of one of the actual participants in the study. So let's welcome Jim to the show here. Hello, my name is Jim Graham. I'd like to tell you about an experience that I had during World War II as a guinea pig in an experiment in semi-starvation. By the time of the study, the war had been going on for five years, and there were reports of millions of people who were starving. You know, Photos were being published of emaciated individuals, not just prisoners of war, just about everyone was facing dramatic food shortages. And Keyes recognized that we didn't really know much about starvation from a physiological and nutritional perspective. And the war, you know, when it hopefully ended, how do we re-nourish these people in a safe way? You know, what, what changed in their body during this time? What do we feed them? How do we feed them? So he wanted to answer these questions and he developed a study to try to do so. But in order to understand the impacts of feeding a starved person, he needed to have access to starved people. And in the 1940s, our ethics standards with human subjects research were a little different. So he thought, let's just get some people and starve them, (laughs) which very different. Yeah, this is what I love about this is because this is the type of experiment that will never, ever happen again because of all of the regulations in place, all the ethics in place, which is a very good thing. Trust me, I'm not saying it's a bad thing. Um, It's just that I can't believe he was able to get this type of study approved. Yeah, absolutely. And I think just keep that in mind as we go through the story here, as it gets crazier and crazier. So in order to choose participants for this intense journey, he wanted to find men. I mean, men were the subjects of research at this time you know, men who felt passionately about helping the war effort, but of course, you know, weren't already abroad fighting. 
So he teamed up with the Civilian Public Service Division of Conscientious Objectors. So conscientious objectors were folks who refused to get involved in military service, often for philosophical or religious reasons. And the ones involved with the civilian public service were already focused on nonviolent acts of service to assist the war effort. So Ansel Keys called on them to serve in a way I'm sure many of them were not anticipating. I was one of those conscientious objectors. Early in 1944, a call went out for volunteers, for uh, those of us who were working in various civilian public service projects. I had already spent a couple of years with the Forest Service, planting trees and fighting forest fires. This call for volunteers sounded like an opportunity to provide a worthwhile service, not just to our country, but to all humanity. And let's let Jim tell us a little bit about the experience of being selected for this strange study. I was one of more than 100 volunteers. Of those 100, 40 were selected to go to Minneapolis for clinical tests and interviews. And I was one of the final 36 chosen to take part in the experiment. In the middle of November 1944, we 36 reported to the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis. We were shown to our quarters where we were to live for the next year. Okay, so at this point, it sounds like they've chosen 36 individuals. They've kind of narrowed down from 100. And we have these 36 men that are heading to Minneapolis. And they're going to live for one year in this facility and essentially undergo the experiment. Yes, exactly. Okay, so then what happens next? Yeah, so now the experiment gets underway and it would last for a year. And so here's what it looks like. Ready? Okay, I'm ready. So the first three full months were the control period where the participants ate the same foods as each other, but different amounts with the goal of maintaining their body weight. And this allowed the researchers to know how much energy each person needed to maintain their body weight. I started out at about 3,500 calories a day which you might think would be enough for someone my size. I'm six foot two and normally weigh about 175 pounds. But even at that level, I lost weight because I was fairly active. One of my hobbies is folk dancing, which I taught regularly at a local church. Furthermore, this was the middle of winter, so I was into all the winter sports, especially ice skating. Since I was losing weight, they kept increasing my food allotment. At the end of the 12 weeks, I was at 3,700 calories a day and still losing weight, but not so rapidly. So at the end of the control period, the participants spent two weeks getting extensive testing, and these tests would repeat at different points throughout the experiment. And I'll have Jim just describe how extensive these tests were, because Ansel Keys really went for it. So listen to this. They measured everything you could imagine. They measured height, weight, chest size, stomach size, blood volume, and specific gravity. You get specific gravity by weighing underwater in the swimming pool. They measured eyesight, hand-eye coordination, bone density, lung capacity, and capacity for work. They took blood samples, urine samples, stool samples, sperm samples, and bone marrow samples. They did electrocardiograms and skin biopsies and measured our basal metabolism. They observed the functioning of the stomach by feeding us a bowl of oatmeal laced with barium sulfate. 
and then following its progress by x-ray and fluoroscope. They measured the tendency towards fainting using a tilt table. They measured movement during sleep. In addition to all these physiological tests, we were given various psychological tests. And I should point out that throughout the experiment, we had weekly meetings with a psychologist, and each of us kept a diary. So that's pretty rigorous. I mean, they're going through a lot of testing. Ansel Keys really wanted to get as much data as he could out of this, as, out of this experiment. And so on February 12th, 1945, they begin the starvation period. And this actual intervention period, the, the starvation period, would last for six months. And during this time, they were served two meals a day, and they had three different menus that they would cycle between. So, you know, they would do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and then it would start over with the menus. And the foods chosen for the meals were meant to mimic what people in Central Europe were likely eating because they really wanted to know how applicable it would be to what the folks who were starving abroad were actually eating. We had whole wheat, bread, potatoes, cereals, and lots of turnips and cabbage. Only token amounts of meats and dairy products. The average daily intake was 1,570 calories, and that included about 50 grams of protein and 30 grams of fat. So 1,570 calories on average during the starvation period, which I think we'll probably talk about later, Jen. That's an interesting number, uh, you know, given our our context uh, for uh, weight loss. Um, Some folks had more, some had less, but the researchers were mainly focused on guiding each person towards a goal of losing 25% of their body weight. So if someone wasn't losing weight as expected, their calorie allotment would be reduced. Or if someone was losing weight too fast, they'd be given more food. So let's hear what this felt like firsthand. At the beginning, this was a rather interesting experience. We were losing weight, of course, but for the first few weeks, we still had quite a bit of energy. We were expected to continue all activities as before, to the extent that we could. We had to walk a minimum of 22 miles per week, plus a half hour on the treadmill each week. We had to spend 15 hours a week on our assigned jobs at the lab, and of course, keep up our classes. It wasn't long, however, before we began losing our will to do anything that required energy. The days began to drag out, each day getting longer and longer, and there seemed to be no end of starvation in sight. Six months seemed like forever. Each morning we would get up, step on the scales, and check our weight against the chart of expected weight loss to see if maybe we might be entitled to some extra bread and potatoes. And so after a couple of months, you started to see really significant physical signs of change as a result of this semi-starvation. And so I'm going to keep letting Jim have the floor to tell you about this experience. I'd look in the mirror and see that my eyes looked hollow. My cheeks were only a thin covering for the bones in my face, and my hair was getting thinner. If I tried to smile, it was just a grimace. I didn't feel like smiling in the first place, and I never laughed. My muscles were almost gone, my bones protruded, and sitting on a hard chair was uncomfortable, even for a few minutes. Most of us carried around pillows to sit on. I couldn't walk up a flight of stairs without stopping to rest once or twice on the way up. 
I felt like an old man. I thought about food all the time. I started collecting cookbooks, you know, the kind with beautiful color pictures of delicious looking dishes. I felt cold all the time, even though it was the middle of summer. Nothing felt better than to find a nice warm spot in the sunshine and do nothing but lie there and soak up the heat of the sun. So in addition to the difficulty regulating their body temperature, like Jim just mentioned, the participants' bodies were also not able to regulate fluid very well, and many of them developed significant swelling in their legs. But aside from these physical symptoms, I think many of the most interesting findings have to do with the participants' mental health and you know, the state of their psychology. You know, the reports show that participants became highly irritable, often really angry. They lost their entire interest in dating or intimacy. They really focused their attention specifically on food in a way that I think was pretty unexpected to Keyes. It seemed as if the veneer of civilization had been removed, leaving bare the animal underneath. Food occupied our thoughts all the time. At mealtime, each one had his special way of dealing with the food. A couple of the fellows would eat their food quickly and then leave the cafeteria and try to forget about it. Most of the rest of us dawdled over our food. Some would mix their food all together. Others would savor each bite of each item on the plate. Any food looked good. Even the dirty crusts of bread in the street looked appetizing. And we envied the fat pigeons picking at them. About two months into the semi-starvation period, one of the participants broke down. He was coming back from a walk downtown, stopped at an ice cream shop for a dish of ice cream. Once he'd started, he couldn't stop. He went on an eating binge. A little further down the street, he stopped again for an ice cream sundae. And then after that, it was a series of sundaes and malted milks before returning to the lab to report that he'd broken the diet and would have to be removed from the program. So it's clear now that the psychological changes that happened in starvation were significant. And finally, six months come to an end, July 24th, 1945. It's Jim's 23rd birthday. And, you know, they've now entered the final phase of the study. It's three months of the rehabilitation period. And for this phase of the study, the participants were divided into four groups. And so each group received a different amount of calories above what they'd been eating in the past six months. So the unfortunate folks in group one only got an additional 400 calories per day. So I would be pissed if I was in this group. Same. (laughs) But the lucky folks in group four got 1,600 calories more than they had been eating. That's the group I'd want. Yeah, that's my group for sure. (laughs) The researchers also wanted to know the influence of giving additional protein supplement and vitamin supplements to the participants. So some received additional protein, some received additional multivitamin. So, you know, I was wondering, how did the participants feel now that they were in the rehab phase? You know, was this just like, ah, finally we're done. So let's see what Jim has to say about that. Morale was high for a few days, but that did not last long when we discovered that the food we were getting was not enough to satisfy hunger, and we were not even beginning to gain weight. In fact, for the first few weeks, we lost weight as pounds of edema fluids were being replaced by healthy flesh. Signs of recovery were so slow in coming 
that we became even more despondent than during semi-starvation. And I think Jim is too classy of a gentleman to mention it, but you know, this feeling of being despondent it sounds like it was pretty pervasive when you read the, the stories in the, in the final report. During this time, after the starvation period was technically over, one of the participants, a man named Samuel Legg, was out chopping some wood and he brought the axe down on his own hand <gasps> and cut off three of his fingers. Oh my gosh. Yeah, because he was having, because he was like having trouble focusing or concentrating. So Legg was quoted as saying, I'm not ready to say I did it on purpose. I'm not ready to say I didn't. Wow. Do you think he was trying to get out of the study maybe? No, I don't because he went to Keyes right after and begged him to remain in the study and says, it was an accident, it was an accident. And later on, you know, he commented on how just depressed and despondent he was and how he had kind of like lost his grasp on, you know, who he was. And so uh, I think it was just sort of like a a psychological effect of what he had been through. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. And these types of stories just make it all too clear to Keyes that the men didn't seem to be getting better with the higher calorie intake right away. So he did the only thing he could do aside from ending the study. He gave them more food. He added Mm. 800 calories to everyone's allotment. So everyone bumped up by 800. But still, it wasn't the robust rehabilitation that I think Keyes was expecting. Even those getting nearly 4,000 calories gained weight very slowly. By the end of three months rehabilitation, none of us had yet reached normal weight. Wow. So the end of rehabilitation... Some people are eating 4,000 calories a day, but not really rehabilitating the way that maybe people expected them to. And the war ended before the study did. And people were being released from concentration camps who'd been starving for a really long time. And people were looking to Keys to give some guidance, like, what do we do? And it was difficult because the study hadn't concluded yet. So his first statement to the public was that people who had starved must be rehabilitated physically before they turn their attention to the idea of democracy. In other words, they are psychologically not the same person in their starved state that they will be when they're rehabilitated. So he didn't, wasn't ready to comment on how to rehabilitate them, but he said, nourish them first, however you can, and then discuss the political implications of what's happened second, which I think is just his way of saying, I'm seeing changes in mental state that are so significant. I want people to be able to focus on taking care of their bodies before we get right down to brass tacks and talk about what the implications of the end of this war actually mean for them on a day-to-day basis. So as the experiment came to a close, he shared more findings. So we'll let Jim describe those. Here I'm quoting Dr. Keyes in a speech he made in Chicago. Enough food must be supplied to allow tissues destroyed during starvation to be rebuilt. Our experiments have shown that in an adult man, no appreciable rehabilitation can take place on a diet of 2,000 calories a day. The proper level is more like 4,000 calories for some months. The character of the rehabilitation diet is also important, but unless calories are abundant, then extra proteins and minerals of little value, end quote. So this was a really important finding. You know, we've learned that we can't just go back to quote unquote normal eating 
after such a period of undernourishment, we really need to eat significantly more for what can be a long time before our body can return to homeostasis. So here's our, our, our last time hearing from Jim today at speaking about what this process of his own rehabilitation felt like. After the experiment was over, I was still hungry for a long time. Even when I could eat all I wanted, I would finish a meal and still feel hungry. My stomach just would not hold anymore. For months, I carried candy bars or cookies in my pocket and munched continually. In six months, I went from a low of 122 pounds to a high of 225 pounds. It took me three years to get back to normal weight and normal eating habits. Three years to get back to normal eating habits after six months of a very low-calorie diet for him based on his needs. And the final report of the Minnesota starvation experiment wouldn't come out until five years later in 1950. It was 1,300 pages in two volumes. It is super extensive and highlights how the greatest changes seem to be psychological. So just to put a pin in the story of Ansel Keys, I want to say that this is a landmark study, but not even his most famous study in the world of nutrition. Mm -hmm. He was the researcher who led the seven country study, which was the sweeping epidemiological study looking at the correlations between dietary intake and heart disease risk, which is where we get the notion of the Mediterranean diet being healthy. He traveled the world for his research. And in 1961, he was on the cover of Time magazine. He's a really interesting character. And the seven country study is perhaps the most debated piece of nutrition research of all time. So maybe we'll discuss that in a future episode if folks are interested, can let us know. Yeah, so that's the tale of the Minnesota starvation experiment or Minnesota semi-starvation experiment. But I think, you know, we got to get into why are we talking about this? Yes, it's an interesting story, but I think there's applications to how we eat today that are really important here that I want to pull out. And so I think when we think about the findings here being helpful. Yeah, they're, they're helpful for folks who experience famine or, or war and starvation due to war. But, you know, what does it teach us about our sort of modern version, at least in our part of the world, of, of, of semi-starvation, which for many people is, is dieting for weight loss. And so I want to ask you, Jen, how do these findings from the Minnesota starvation experiment, you know, influence your thinking about modern day dieting for weight loss? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think one of the first things to say that I find just to be kind of almost outrageous is the fact that, you know, many of kind of today's most popular diet plans actually recommend, you know, a calorie amount that's lower than the calorie amount that was recommended to the Minnesota starvation experiment participants. And, you know, just to give a couple examples, you know, uh, Weight Watchers or WW, their kind of lowest plan is 1300 calories. Um, Noom, which of course doesn't market itself as a diet, but we know that it is. Um, they'll actually recommend like 1200 calories for women sometimes. And this is even well below the, you know, 1600 calories or so given to those study participants which again, just kind of blows my mind because, um, you know, while many people who are dieting don't necessarily feel maybe as poorly as those participants, um, many people who diet and who you and I speak with often report feeling really poorly when they're restricting their food intake. 
And how so? I mean, what are some ways in which people experience both the physical and psychological impacts of undernourishment when they diet that, you know, make you think of the experience of the participants in this study? Yeah, I mean, I think Jim actually illustrated some of them really nicely. I think we have to break them down into, like you said, two different categories. There's kind of the physiological impacts of restriction, and then there's the psychological impacts. And I mean, he touched on how, you know, for many, many months, if not years, he definitely digested food differently. And that can definitely happen for people who are restricting their intake. Um, If they are dieting, they can get full really easily. They may have digestive issues. Um, You know, other kind of consequences that are physiological of food restriction are things like fatigue, low energy, decreased metabolism. Um, He... Jim touched on uh, muscle loss. He described, you know, looking in the mirror and seeing his muscles kind of wasting away. So, you know, lots and lots of physiological consequences. But then the psychological ones are also really significant. And these are the ones that, um, you know, again, he kind of touched on as well. But people begin to think about food more. Their, you know, thoughts will drift to food. They may really hyper-focus on the nutrients they're missing out on. So I always think about how if people are on like a low-carb diet, for example, carbs are what they're thinking about, really kind of like nonstop. And then, you know, there's a lot of other psychological impacts like, you know, an increase in depression or anxiety sometimes, like a lack of interest in things they normally enjoy because essentially they just don't have any energy to think about anything else. Yeah, and it it always strikes me how much the participants in the study seem to change. I mean, they interviewed a bunch of people to be participants in the study and they selected the 36. And part of the inclusion criteria was like, you know, good mental health and, and people who, um, you know, seem to be in a place where they were ready for this experiment. And then, you know, some people are, you know, really having such a profound impact on their mental health as a result of this, this calorie restriction that you said, I think you made such a good point. They were getting more calories than a lot of people who do modern diet plans, especially ones that are marketed, not even as a diet plan, but just like a a wellness plan like Noom or Weight Watchers, where you, you pull back the hood on the, the calorie abstraction of points and you go, oh yeah, it's the 1300 calorie diet, right? Like that's less than these participants were getting. And, you know, the, the changes in how you eat change you and how you think and how you relate to the world and what your interests are. I mean, he talked about obsessively collecting cookbooks and there's a ton of reports of people doing that, you know, just like, their hyper focus on food is a result of their undernourishment and what else is being sort of blocked out from their life as a result of needing to hyper fixate on food. And, you know, it strikes me that a lot of that is your body's way of trying to protect you. I wonder if you can kind of speak to that idea a little bit. These changes are unfortunate, but it sounds like it's a way of our body trying to keep us well based on what our body needs. Yeah, well, you know, I think one of the big takeaways from this story or the example of the Minnesota starvation experiment, to me, ties back to this idea that people often put on themselves of, I just don't have enough willpower to diet. So it's the kind Mm -hmm. of like, you know, quote unquote, it's just willpower narrative. And what I mean by that is that, you know, there's this idea that's kind of pervasive that if somebody can't stick to a diet, they're like lazy, they lack willpower, they don't like want it bad enough. 
And this often makes people feel really badly about themselves because that makes them tend to default to a narrative of guilt or failure. But I think what this experiment shows us is that like, it's not about willpower. I think the first thing to say is that like, our bodies don't like or want to starve. And there are many mechanisms in place to try to combat restricted food intake, whether that restricted food intake is a participant in the Minnesota starvation experiment, or if that's somebody who's participating in Noom, there are lots of mechanisms in place that our body uses to try to push back against food restriction. You know, just one example that comes to mind is the release of the hormone ghrelin, which essentially functions to stimulate appetite. And this hormone will be released and continue to be released when someone begins dieting or if they like, you know, skip meals. Um, And this hormone regulation essentially drives us towards eating. It's literally our body trying to protect us from the impacts of too little food. Yeah. So so what are our final takeaways here, would you say, Jen? Yeah. I mean, I think we can learn a lot from this experiment that, like we said, will likely never be repeated. But I mean, I think it's really important for people to understand both the physical and the mental impacts of dieting or food restriction on the body. Obviously, we went through a bunch of them earlier in this conversation. And I think it can be a really helpful reminder to people that when you are dieting or when you're depriving food, your body is essentially trying to protect you from that restriction. And it's not your fault if you can't starve yourself, right? Um, I also think it's really important to recognize that restriction really doesn't actually result in long-term weight loss for the vast majority of people. And you know, knowing that this is the case can often help people rationalize the choices they make around dieting or not dieting. Um, You know, I think there are really other ways that we can focus on our mental and physical health that don't include not eating enough. And those can be things like physical activity or making sure you're getting enough food variety, adding things like fruits and vegetables rather than like taking away or restricting carbs or fat. I mean, keeping up on medical care, self-care like meditation, you and I could go on and on and on and probably list so many ways that we can focus or emphasize health that don't include deprivation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I just want to put another flag in this idea that when we are deprived of energy, it changes how our brain works. And so, you know, if, if it's just instructive to keep in mind that there is not like one perfect you who is always like clearly thinking like we lose our ability to think clearly and care for ourselves appropriately. We change what we're interested in when we're deprived. And I think one of the best examples of that, you know, we, yet we can't do a uh, experiment like what keys did anymore, but we can have the show alone on the history channel where we watch, (laughs) which we love, which we love. You and I love. Yeah. I know we're both big fans of, and we get to watch people make really poor decisions, like eat, uh, you know, a salmon they caught that's infested with worms and then throw up and go home because they're deprived of energy. I mean, people are making very poor decisions on that show. They last a heck of a lot longer than I would. I would go home after literally 11 minutes, (laughs) but I mean... There's modern examples too we can see. And, and you know, maybe if you're listening and you've been through some, some phase of 
undernourishment associated with a diet, you can recall too how it changed your mood. Were you irritable? Were you maybe not the same person you normally are? So, you know, I, I really like that takeaway of the study too. And I'm glad that Keys kind of called that out first as one of the biggest impacts was the unexpected psychological impacts of dieting. So on that note, I'm going to go eat 4,000 calories to hang <laughs> with my boy, Jim. And uh, thank you for uh, participating in story time today. We'll see you in the next one. See you, Matt. Nutrition for Mortals is a production of Oceanside Nutrition, a real-life nutrition counseling practice in beautiful Newburyport, Massachusetts, where we provide individual nutrition counseling both in-person and online via telehealth. Feel free to learn more about our practice at OceansideNutrition.com. If you want to send in a show idea, you can email us at NutritionForMortals at gmail.com. We're on Instagram at NutritionForMortals. If you're digging the show, tell a friend. Maybe give us a nice review on Apple Podcasts if you can. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.